Hello, you are listening to the Human Rights Podcast, hosted by the Irish Centre for Human Rights. I'm Parisa Zangana, and I'm a PhD student at the Irish Centre for Human Rights. And on today's episode, you will be listening to a discussion on the book, Ensuring Respect for International Humanitarian Law, which was published in 2020. The book was edited by Dr. Eve Massingham and Annabelle McConaughey. Speakers include Eve, Annabelle, Feliciana Thin, and me. The discussion was chaired by ICHR Professor Rain Murphy, who is an expert on international humanitarian law and peacekeeping. He is also on the faculty of the International Institute for Criminal Investigations and, among other appointments, he is a commissioner of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy the podcast. You're all welcome. I'm delighted that you could be with us. Um, so uh, the, the first question that I have to ask is to put it to Annabelle, uh, that the book presents an overview of common article one of the Geneva Conventions. And can you tell us a bit about this obligation and why you have undertaken this exploration of common article one? Yes, thank you, Ray. Thank you for the introduction. And um, thank you to everyone at the Irish Centre for Human Rights for inviting us along. It's really lovely to be able to, um, to talk to a group of interested people about this. Look, I'm going to start with the why. Um, I think Eve and I, I'm speaking for myself, but Eve, you know, nod along or shake your head. I think we were intrigued by this particular article and the fact that this was, you know, this is um, an article, as you say, a really tiny little short article that appears in all four of the Geneva Conventions of 1949 and two of the additional protocols, uh, number one of 77 and uh, number three of 2005. It's common to all, but for the last 70 years, it's been somewhat neglected. It hasn't really been um, examined. Uh, and it started to be in the last 20 years. So I guess we were intrigued by the fact that it had perhaps been neglected. However, there's only a little portion of this little article that's specifically neglected and that intrigued us. As you say, Ray, this the common article one says the high contracting parties undertake to respect and to ensure respect for the convention in all circumstances. So to respect uh, a piece of international law is very uncontroversial. Everybody understands what that is. If you sign an international treaty, um, you must act in good faith you know, to the terms of that treaty. So we can put that to one side in a sense, but we've referred to this in the book and it is referred uh, to those who have looked at this article. It's referred to as the internal compliance obligation. So it's your obligation as a state to uh, create the necessary domestic legislation or to enact the terms of the treaty, whatever that should be, uh, with your own government, with your own people, with those within your jurisdiction, etc. So put that to one side, that's quite uncontroversial. 
The second thing is to ensure respect. And this was the bit where there appeared to be, uh, when there had been some examination of it, some controversy. Did it mean that it was an extension of the internal compliance or did it mean something else? Is there an external compliance obligation? Are states required by the law to make sure that other states, other parties, those outside their own jurisdiction, um, respect the law? So do they have something additional to what we understand as that internal compliance? So we referred to that as the external compliance aspect. Oh, if there is, then how does that manifest itself? Is it demonstrated negatively by not assisting in a violation of IHL? Or is it to be manifested positively? Are states obligated to actually do something to prevent, um, I perhaps halt, a violation of international humanitarian law. So that's what we want. Oh, and if and if there is, then you can then go to another level. If there is an obligation to both negatively and positively take steps to ensure respect for international humanitarian law, uh, does that mean that states are under an obligation to exercise some form of due diligence? What do they have to do to make sure that they understand what's going on around the world so that they can take those negative or positive steps that they are required to do? All of this is obviously dependent on the kind of influence that states have over other states. Um, but yeah, I guess that the main point was that we were intrigued by those words, ensuring respect. And remember that right at the end of the article, it says in all circumstances. So it's a really broad, uh, if there is an obligation, it's a really broad obligation. It's in all circumstances. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I hope it introduces you to why we became quite passionate about putting something together. Yes, thanks, thanks Annabelle. And my second question then would be to you also, you've looked at the practical application of the obligation from a number of perspectives. Which, one, uh, which ones are, are they and why did you choose to take this approach? Yeah, look, part of this was the way that the conversation with Eve developed, that the pair of us thought that what we might be able to discover if you know, having identified that we thought there was an external compliance aspect um, and that states have to, um, you know, have an obligation to not assist or not encourage violations, but also actions they must take. We felt that they'd, what we would come up with is some sort of list of the steps that you can take, the actions you can take, the measures you must undertake in order to ensure respect. So um, we felt that if we could look at ensure respect through lots of different, or use that as the lens through which to examine different aspects of IHL, we would be able to uncover this comprehensive and magical list that we would be able to. That, that isn't how it came out, and we'll talk about the conclusions later, I'm sure. Um, but 
What we did want to try and do is find out what actions a state must take to exercise influence on parties to an armed conflict. And so we came up with a really long list of all the possibilities. And um, even I were new to publishing a book, but you very soon discover that your beautiful long list is really constrained within how many words you're allowed, how many chapters you're allowed. So we began to sort of look at, we tried to look for things like what happens before a conflict, what you have to prepare, that how do you prepare the groundwork, then what do you do in conflict, what are the hot topics like detention and targeting and so forth um, that might take place. So in the first section, there were things like diplomatic, um, humanitarian diplomacy, diplomatic actions, legislation, domestic legislation. And then we also looked at, um, and this is where Parisa's work came in, what happens after the conflict, you know, international criminal law and how that might um, operate to ensure respect. Um, the list itself, we also wanted to take a bit of a geographic look. And in the end, that was perhaps the part that, um, that we lost in that we were constrained too much by trying to take um, a state view of ensure respect as well as a thematic view of ensure respect. So largely the chapters deal with themes and um, much of it came down to uh, the people who were generous enough to offer their time. So there were people who were interested in writing about targeting or peacekeeping operations, um, internally displaced people. We did um, it, we did encourage somebody to write about the relationship with Kenya and Sudan to um, Kenya and Uganda to South Sudan. So there was one. Uh, of those sort of geographic approaches that we took. But um, yeah, there were so many more things that we could have chosen and we weren't able to. I'd have liked cultural property. I would have loved dissemination to go in there. Um, but yes, constraints, I think, were what made us choose and the generosity of the uh, authors that we approached, those who were able to help um, in this particular project. Okay, thank, thank you very much, Annabelle. Um, so if I may go to Eve now and discuss uh, your chapter, Eve, and in your, in your chapter, you explore how states can take particular actions when regulating weapons, which either support or detract from their common Article 1 obligations. So can you tell us uh, what these actions are? Yes, thank you very much, Ray, and thank you also to the, the Irish Centre for Human Rights for the opportunity to talk about uh, the book and the chapter. Uh, I certainly found that there were a number of strong linkages between weapons law and the idea of ensuring respect. And essentially what I've done in the chapter is break that down into five categories of, of actions. So the first one is uh, the weapons review obligation. So some of you may be familiar with the fact that there is an obligation on states party to additional protocol one to the Geneva Conventions to conduct some kind of review process to ensure that their means and methods of warfare are ones that are compliant with the, the principles of international humanitarian law. And so whether a weapon can be used in, in compliance 
um, was a part of that means and methods uh, assessment under the weapons review process. And so uh, that was one of the sort of categories of, of actions that I looked at. The second one was around the specific weapons law obligations. So we've talked a little bit about the Geneva Conventions, but you'll also be aware that there's a whole range of different specific weapons treaties which either prohibit their use or restrict that was sort of the second category of, of discussion that I had. The third one related to the training and the policies and the doctrine and the manuals of, of militaries. And obviously ensuring uh, respect is about uh, the third state element that Annabelle was just talking about. So it's not just about having your own house in order in relation to these manuals and documents, but where appropriate, um, also providing assistance to, to third states in, in that regard. The fourth category that I looked at was sort of the import and export controls. So quite a domestic uh, issue here, but if you do not have appropriate import and export controls on not just weapons, of course, but the materials that may go towards the making uh, or the production of weapons, then you are effectively allowing through those processes other states or assisting or facilitating other states even to, to produce um, uh, illegal weapons. So that was the fourth category of actions that I looked at. And then the final one was um, having your domestic criminal legislation be comprehensive and robust and criminalising violations of international humanitarian law generally, but obviously in this case specifically pertaining to weapons. And so basically my argument in relation to all of those five categories, uh, those processes that states go through in relation to weapons law, is that they really need a checklist that Common Article 1 is thought about when they're considering uh, a weapons review, when they're considering a, an international treaty that they might enter into, when they're considering an export decision, um, that they have common article one as something that they think about and consider their obligations in relation to. And so that was the basis of my argument in relation to weapons. Sorry, Eve, just as a follow-up, um, I, I actually noticed that uh, recently reading the CIPRI yearbook that Australia is one of the major importers of arms in recent years, um, which surprised me. But is there is there an example of, of where this has been, where the actions taken have been done in a, in a manner which is uh, which achieves the objectives of, of the uh, uh, Common Article 1, where, where it has been done well? Yeah, no, look, I think there's there's a couple of, of, of really positive examples. Perhaps one of the, the, the best known and, and one that people might not be might be familiar with, but not sort of ever really thought about it as a common article one action. And that is something that Annabelle and I definitely found throughout the book is that lots of things happen that do give effect to common article one, but people don't necessarily catch them in those terms. So one of the really key ones in relation to weapons is actually all of the, the funding and the work that governments all around the world contribute to weapons decontamination. Um, so if you look at the processes, which of course, some of them are crystallized by treaties, the anti-personnel landmine uh, prohibition treaty, for example, includes this as a specific obligation to help in, in the cleanup uh, and the removal of explosive um, remnants of war. Uh, but this is an example of actions that even non-state parties um, to, to those treaties are engaged in, they're engaged in funding them through um, development and aid programs, as well as through military programs sometimes as well. 
And so that's sort of the, you know, the quintessential good example of, of how this common Article 1 obligation is already being met um, by, by governments in, in particular ways. That's nothing to do with their country. It's a third state and they are assisting to, to clean up. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Eve. Yeah. And finally, then, is there an example of where a certain action has been taken without regard to Common Article 1? Yeah, so you mentioned that Australia has been importing um, a lot of weapons and, and uh, actually in the original studies, um, which were my PhD studies that kind of led the beginning of this process, um, I, I did focus quite particularly on it on Australia. And so one of the uh, examples that I use in the book chapter is Australia's approach to the negotiations of the Convention on Cluster Munitions. Um, so in that convention, there is a provision which uh, effectively allows state parties to operate with non-state parties without constraining those non-state parties in a way that you would expect in accordance with the spirit of the convention, you, you would expect them to be constrained by. Um, and certainly the uh, uh, materials and the discussions and the negotiations around that indicate that Australia was one of these states very much behind that. Australia was very much fighting for an ability to not hamper its coalition partners in their use of cluster munitions. So whilst Australia is a state party, they have negotiated into this treaty a way that they can potentially enable a non-state party to uh, violate the, the spirit of, of the convention. Uh, and so that's the, um, a, a one of the examples that I, I use in the book um, about had you have had to, as a policy even, had you have had a policy within your government negotiating processes that required you to consider Common Article 1 when you're negotiating an international treaty, that approach may have, may have had to have looked very different because it, it really isn't something that you can square off with the obligation to respect and to ensure respect, IHO. Okay, thank you very much, Eve. Um, if I could go now to Calisiana and discuss uh, your chapter, Calisiana. Uh, in your chapter, you explore how the obligation to respect and ensure respect for international humanitarian law relates to detention. Uh, what are some of the steps that states can take to ensure respect for international humanitarian law rules around detention? Yeah, thanks very much, Ray. And uh, once again, thanks uh, for inviting me to speak about uh, this. Um, I think to start with, to I mean, to start to answer your question, the point is that detention is very practical. It's very much when you're doing detention operations, you are really... Um, uh, touching the well-being um, of uh, of individuals uh, directly, um, so it's it's not surprising that in uh, in relation to international um, conflict, there are lots and lots of rules governing um, how you should be treating detainees um, and specifically prisoners of war um, under Geneva Convention three. Um, unfortunately, not quite so many um, in relation to non-international armed conflict. Um, but on the other hand, I think that there are there's enough uh, common sense and there's enough law around um, so that basically everyone should know what they're, they're doing. Um, but unfortunately, um, states have been really quite ill-prepared for detention operations. You would actually think that going into an armed conflict, um, that would be one of the things that you were prepared for. You should think, yes, we're going to be fighting. We're probably going to be killing some people, but we're probably also going to be detaining people. 
Um, and uh, in very few cases, uh, I mean, increasingly, uh, states are becoming aware of the fact that they need to prepare. Um, but in so many cases, uh, they, they went into it quite ill-prepared. And I think that led to quite a few problems. Um, and really, that's where um, where the points that I'll outline in terms of what uh, what steps other states should be taking should come in. Um, but unfortunately, detention um, is also very much a matter of state sovereignty. Um, it's very much seen as the role of the state to provide detention operations. And certainly that is true under international humanitarian law. Um, but on the other hand, um, it does mean that other states are unwilling to really explore what the detention operations look like, what is the treatment of detainees, what are the conditions, um, and, and the states themselves that are conducting the operations are very unwilling to let anyone in to see what's actually happening um, in place. Um, so, of course, I mean, we're, we're very much aware of uh, many of the key examples that I, I outlined in the book, um, Extraordinary Rendition, uh, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, um, and obviously issues in Syria and Afghanistan. Um, but I did discover that there were, um, sort of going back to what Annabelle outlined in terms of uh, preventive steps and corrective steps. And then I also touch a little bit on uh, some normative steps uh, that have been explored. Um, but in terms of steps that third party states um, and also those who are actually engaged in partner operations um, with the states that are doing detention, what they can do um, in terms of corrective approaches is um, uh, reparations um, to victims, uh, training of uh, detention officers on international humanitarian law, on torture, on just on basic practices as how you set up a detention facility. Um, then there are some more international uh, steps that can be taken, so sanctions um, either unilateral sanctions or through the UN or through uh, various other bodies. Um, stopping funding of aid and development projects uh, where there are problems in relation to detention. Um, touching on Eve's uh, chapter as well, stopping the transfer of weapons which fuel the conflict. Um, and then also as a tie into Parisa's chapter, um, investigations and holding perpetrators accountable um, is, is very important. And we do see at the moment that the ICC has started investigations into Afghanistan, for example, in relation to some uh, issues around uh, detention as well as other war crimes. Um, and some preventative approaches that I developed um, would include uh, public condemnation um, and, and then also developing and promoting the, the law, supporting states to prepare for detention operations so putting in place uh, some supportive arrangements before they actually launch detention operations and very much about information sharing. I think that there's quite a gap in terms of information sharing. I think that if, if states were more, more willing to um, tell other states or even publicly explain how they go about setting up detention operations and that, that would assist so many others. Thank you very much, Cristiana. Could you tell me, could you give an example of where the steps taken have been done well, where, where it has had a positive outcome? Yeah, well, I would actually say that um, the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan in 2012 um, made some really good progress in relation to support to detention operations in Afghanistan. Um, they put in place a six-phase uh, six plan um, to improve de detainee safeguards. 
and it was good because it included really practical steps such as inspection of the facilities, remediation training in human rights and detainee treatment, formal certification, um, and supporting accountability actions taken by the government um, by the government. And then it was it was done in a double loop as well, so that then there was the opportunity for uh, for monitoring for visits. Um, to see that the training actually um, was having an effect. Um, so we did actually see that there was a reduction in ill treatment um, in the time that this was uh, put in place. Unfortunately, two years later, ISAF uh, was disbanded. Um, and so there wasn't the opportunity to continue the monitoring. Um, so then it, it did lead to further problems when that wasn't in place. Thank you. Um, the final question then, Feliciana, is, is there an example of where there, have, where there has been no consideration of the obligation to ensure respect? Yes, I think um, quite a few examples, uh, unfortunately, um, because, I mean, one of, the, one of the problems is that there are lots of uh, sanctions and there are lots of means of accountability for IHL, as Eve has already outlined, um, but actually very little attention paid to detention specifically. Um, so I did a little bit of research around Yemen in, uh, for the book chapter, which didn't actually end up being in the chapter, um, partly because the earlier investigation reports uh, from the UN uh, Commission of Inquiry into Yemen didn't address the question of detention at all, even though um, it was quite well known that there were problems in relation to detention. Um, I think Partly the problem is just lack of access. So they just weren't able to see what was going on. Um, but really in the majority of the cases that I have mentioned, Syria, Guantanamo Bay, extraordinary rendition, there aren't any real concrete examples where you can say that states were looking at those detention practices and then in attempting to ensure respect for IHL. Um, I've outlined a number of recommendations that uh, the, the Open Society um, has put forward in relation to detention. Um, and then the UN Commission of Inquiry for Syria has also outlined quite a few good recommendations in relation to detention. Um, but I haven't actually been able to find any indication that those recommendations have actually um, been applied. Okay. Thank you very much, Kirisiana. Uh, Parisa, then, if I may go, go to you as the final contributor. Uh, and uh, in your chapter, you explore how international criminal prosecutions relate to the obligation to respect and ensure respect for humanitarian law. Can you tell us a little bit more about this link, please? Thank you, Ray, and thank you to everybody for uh, coming, um, especially to our guests who are on the other side of the planet. Um, it's quite late for you. Um, the main point that I wanted to explore in my chapter was uh, the link that I argue has been established through international practice uh, between common article one and the formation of international and hybrid criminal tribunals um, in fulfillment of the external dimension of common article one. So we've talked quite a bit about uh, the broad obligation to respect and to ensure respect uh, for IHL in all circumstances. But what does this mean in practice in terms of um, a state fulfilling its obligations under um, IHL with regards to potential prosecutions of violations of international criminal law and international humanitarian law? So um, I've argued that by 
cooperating with um, international criminal tribunals, states may discharge their obligation under the external dimension of common article one. So for example, um, by participating in the formation of a hybrid court or by providing financial assistance, um, this may, these may be concrete actions that states may take in order to uphold IHL under common article one. Um, and I think that this became clear for the first time uh, in the formation or when the ICTY and the ICTR were formed in the early 90s um, under chapter seven of uh, the UN charter. Um, since then, we've seen a number of tribunals that have been formed uh, and are being formed, uh, both with the support of the UN and um, under regional international organizations, if you will, such as the Kosovo Specialist Tribunal, the Extraordinary African Chambers, etc. And there's recent discussion of forming um, a hybrid court for South Sudan. So these are the practice of forming international or hybrid tribunals is not just limited to um, the UN framework anymore. So I think that that's definitely a very positive thing that we've seen in the development of the international criminal tribunals as a potential means of enforcing IHL. Thank you, Parisa. Uh, my, my second question then is in your chapter, um, uh, how you make uh, you, you make a link between Chapter Seven of the UN Charter and Common Article One, and uh, with, with regard to the creation of the international criminal tribunals, and um, have we see, uh, have we seen a reduction uh, in the exercise of the power to ensure respect in recent years, or would you argue that the Security Council still exercises such power, or indeed do regional groupings seek to ensure respect more with the creation of hybrid or other tribunals now? Um, I would say that the power of the Security Council to form international criminal tribunals is not reduced. I think that it has been exercised less in practice. And I think that this might be due to the fact that it is no longer um, a novelty to form an international criminal tribunal, as well as the fact that we now have the International Criminal Court. So um, the last time we saw a formation of an International Criminal Tribunal under chapter seven of the UN Charter was in 2009 with the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Since then, uh, we've seen other courts that have been formed, for example, the Kosovo Specialist Tribunal or Kosovo Specialist Chambers, excuse me, that was formed um, through the European Union with the additional support of third states such as Turkey and the United States. So um, I think that this is a clear example of the fact that uh, other organizations and states have taken on the responsibility to form tribunals and courts um, without relying on chapter seven or without the Security Council having to intervene. Thank you, Parisa. Um, so if, if I may then go back to a more general discussion and, and put a question back to you, Annabelle, that in giving the various responses to the thematic areas of weapons, detention and international criminal law, certain common themes uh, seem to have emerged. Can you tell us about the common findings you uncovered in the chapters? It's interesting because out of the chapters that uh, 
we're sort of talking about today, the common themes that we find were actually found across all the different topic areas that we looked at, whether it was um, parliamentary committees, uh, humanitarian aid, um, diplomatic actions, etc. And broadly, like I say, we thought we'd originally start off with a table with lots of really practical steps in it. Um, Calisiana, when you said detention is such a practical thing, we actually felt we would find these really practical steps um, by examining what states were doing. Now, we did find practical steps, but rather than a, a list that we put in a table, what we found were three broad areas of actions. The first was individual actions. So a state not involved in an armed conflict, a third state, as Eve referred to it, and we refer to it in the book, um, a third state not involved in an armed conflict uh, can ensure respect for the law by respecting the law. So keeping your own house in order, looking after the legislation that you should, setting a good example, modelling what you do, creating strong legislation that can be replicated elsewhere, supporting, um, as Parisa says, supporting individually some of these uh, international criminal tribunals. Individual action, we felt, was an important thing that states could do to demonstrate how you can ensure respect for the law. We then found that there was a group um, or there was another, the second theme that we found was where there was collective action, where states um, acted together to build a conducive environment for IHL. Uh, and Calisiana referred to the normative framework. So it's that legal and normative frameworks that are built with groups of states, uh, whether that's supporting the development of international law, developing uh, international courts, cooperatively acting in order to demonstrate how states, these states may not be involved in an armed conflict, but how they can support IHL. Now, in both instances, at one end of the spectrum, you would find these actions taking place geographically remote from any kind of um, conflict or temporarily remote from any form of conflict. It, it's laying the groundwork type of actions. And then at the other end, we sort of also found, and this was the third theme, where there was direct action to enforce respect. So to ensure respect by taking much more direct action. And that could be positive action taken in the face of violations. You're not involved in a conflict, but you call it out when there are violations. Um, you take, uh, what Sarah McCosker in her chapter had this lovely quote about um, the actions that you could take increasing in diplomatic strength and political bite. And I think you can, you know, that draws that picture of the kind of actions that start with confidential and, and quiet diplomacy all the way through to, you know, sanctions that are enforced or, um, you know, whether really forceful action that's taken. Um, so those broad 
three broad themes kept coming up over and over and over again in all the areas that were being looked at. Um, and definitely they were the conclusions that we drew and each of them kind of demonstrated uh, this kind of actions that are often unattributed to Common Article 1 but support what Common Article 1 represents, that external compliance aspect of it. And if you, you look, you see that, and in a sense it's really challenging to report those kinds of things and demonstrate that all this kind of positive work is going on because it's much easier to report the breaches, to report when things don't happen or don't work that way or violations occur and nobody does anything about it. But I think that you start looking and you begin to see that an awful lot of work is going on and should be attributed to um, ensuring respect for IHL. Thank you, Annabelle. Following on from that, Eve, can I ask you, uh, what do states and other actors need to take away from this? I think, as, as Annabelle said, this this first finding that we had about having your own house in, in order, I mean, states definitely can't do anything more until that they've got that, um, that sorted. So that's kind of a, a first basis. But I think there are a couple of other things um, that you can specifically say, well, if you want to explain to a state what, what they need to do, this is what they should do. And I think a really important one is paying attention to what is, is going on. And we, this is talked about a little bit in, in the book in terms of, you know, as a state, as a, a member of the international community, you, you have an obligation to, to, know, to know what is going on um, and to exercise what, and the International Committee of the Red Cross use this phrasing when they talk about um, Common Article 1, this idea of your capacity and your influence. And so... I don't think states need to take away that in X situation they need to do um, A and B. That's certainly not, not what we found. What we found is that in any given situation there are a range of different responses. There's no one size fits all, but certain states where they have some capacity and influence uh, need to, to do particular things. But you can't do that if you haven't been paying attention to what, what is going on. So I think, you know, for... For, for me, one of the really key findings for, for states and what states need to take away is know what's going on and then do, do what you can and what's appropriate in the circumstances. And the other finding that I think is, is, is really clear and really needs to be thought about from a state perspective is the regulation within your own jurisdiction. Um, and of course, this, this relates to having your house in order, but it can also have extra um, territorial effect. And so... Um, Catherine Drummond, one of our contributors, uh, writes about private actors uh, and the role um, that the regulation of private actors in such a way as ensure respect. Um, it can, can be done, should be done, um, it is beneficial. And so I think that making sure that within your jurisdiction there are not elements that can negatively influence Armed conflict situations in third states is uh, something that we can we can really take away from from those findings. 
Thank you, Eve. Uh, and uh, Kilisiana, if I may return to you then for, for a final question. In your chapter, you focus on norms. In considering the book as a whole, what interesting insights about norms and other thematic areas did you encounter? Yeah, thanks, Ray. Actually, it follows on nicely from Eve's uh, point, because in fact, um, one of the three themes that uh, Eve and Annabelle identify at the end of the book um, is the creation of norms. Um, so it is one of the key themes that uh, really runs throughout um, the majority of the chapters. Um, and also, interestingly, uh, following on from Parisa's uh, last question, um, the UN Security Council might not have been very active in relation to international tribunal creation, but in fact, um, in, re in reading the, the book, um, I came across so many examples where the UN Security Council has been referred to as supporting the creation of norms around ensuring respect. Um, I mean, for example, I mean, one of the obvious ones, of course, is in relation to uh, policies and uh, resolutions around uh, the actions of peacekeepers. Um, and so it's Leanne Smith who uh, discusses that. Then, um, uh, then Yvette Zegenhagen and Petra Ball, uh, they talk about the need to include IHL considerations in UN Security Council resolutions dealing with counterterrorism. And we do see that there are um, humanitarian exemptions in counterterrorism res resolutions. And that's really leading to the creation of a norm around respect and ensuring respect for IHL in relation to uh, implementing counterterrorism legislation. Um, Natalie Weissman talks about UN Security Council resolutions uh, and how they support the development of norms around enabling humanitarian activities um, and ending impediments um, and the un unintended consequences of decisions um, around whether to or not facilitate uh, humanitarian access. Um, and also in relation to IDPs, uh, Linda Ingessa proposes that UN Security Council resolutions also encourage states to move away from norms of state sovereignty um, to ensure humanitarian assistance for IDPs. And I think coming back to the point that I made about state sovereignty um, at the beginning, um, it's encouraging to see that um, norms around also a very sensitive state related issues such as IDPs um, can actually be created uh, to, to ensure an environment of uh, ensure respect. Thank, thank you, Kelisiana. Uh, Parisa, then finally, how does the International Criminal Court hold up as an enforcement mechanism for common Article 1? Uh, thanks very much, Ray. Um, I think it's too early to tell in the, if we're approaching the question from considering the court in the grand scheme of things. Um, the court has been the subject of some controversy due to its performance um, in the past nearly two decades due to uh, the number of convictions or lack of convictions, etc. But I think that if we take a step back and consider the fact that the court is a relatively recent innovation um, of humanity, I think it's quite remarkable that the court exists, first and foremost. So I think that in the fact that we have been able to establish an international criminal court. Um, I think that's a tremendous success and it's a positive indicator um, that an international criminal court can be an enforcement mechanism, excuse me, enforcement mechanism of IHL under common article one. Um, 
just as a broad statement. However, there are some serious jurisdictional issues that limit the court's performance as well as serious political constraints. Um, for example, uh, we've seen that the court has been unable to intervene in Syria, and this shows uh, another limitation of the court's jurisdiction triggering mechanisms with regards to the Security Council because Russia and China have blocked a Security Council resolution um, referring situation in Syria to the ICC. So I think for the ICC to be a truly effective enforcement mechanism of IHL or of international law more generally, we need to have more far, far more political support for the ICC. Okay, thank you very much, Parisa. And uh, th thank you all for very insightful and interesting perspectives on ensuring respect. The one thing for me as an Irish person that I'm reminded is how important the role, even a state as small as Ireland has in ensuring respect and um, the, the what we say, what we do, and uh, our obligations, uh, especially as a member, say, of the Security Council, but either also uh, being a member of the European Union. Uh, so there, there's, a, there's a lot there to, to digest and take into account, and uh, the diversity of your perspectives was really, was really rich and, uh, and, and very welcome.